0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Tim Kimmel preached on a Sunday at TBC. We were away overseas. And uh, then we scheduled a raising truly great kids parenting conference for a weekend. The weekend he was supposed to be here, he got sick, was hospitalized, and didn't make it. So that's been rescheduled for November 16th and 17th. If you are registered for that, your registration still applies to this. Uh, the only difference between last year and this year is that we will provide child care here through age five. But you have to register at the off register at the tables in the hallway or through the office uh, to make sure you you have reservations for babysitting. So there'll be a registration table in the hallway, I believe, starting next week. Uh, There's a lot of information. Tim Kimmel actually recorded something for us. So, Terry, why don't we play uh, that Tim Kimmel video real quickly?
1: Hey, folks, this is Tim Kimmel. I know I was supposed to be with you last November with the Raising Truly Great Kids Conference, but I had an unscheduled encounter at the hospital that detained me. Listen, I'm fine. It was just a flesh wound, (laughs) but I'm coming back, ornerier and crazier than ever, and we're bringing our A-game to Temple on November 16th and 17th. Unless you're planning on heading to Disneyland, having a baby, or getting your eyebrows rotated that weekend, there's nothing you're going to want to be doing more than being right there with us at Temple Bible Church. Temple Bible loves the family. More importantly, Temple Bible loves your family. And that's why their conference team and staff are going overboard to provide you with the kind of encouragement and equipment you need to not only raise up a vibrant new generation of Jesus followers, but also show you how to keep a smile on the face of everyone in your family photo in the process. On that Friday evening and Saturday morning, we're going to learn how to raise our kids the same way God raises His, with grace. We'll show you how you can create a culture of grace in your home that meets your kids' three driving inner needs, builds their character, sets their hearts free, and aims them at a future of true greatness. You'll learn how to balance God's truth and grace when it's necessary to stand on their air hose, and you'll leave our time together with a winning plan on how to bring the best out of your strong-willed ADD, ADHD kids. Whether you have a newborn tweener or starting to empty the nest, you'll walk away with a practical practical help and renewed hope for being a parent you want to be. Now listen, we're coming to Temple on November 16th and 17th with a Raising Truly Great Kids conference. And we want to meet you and encourage you as you do the hardest job out there, parenting. So I'll see you, Lord willing, this coming November 16th and 17th, and we'll learn together how to treat our kids the way God treats us, with grace.
0: How many of you still have kids in the home? Let me see your hands. You've got kids living with you. This is a great opportunity for you. Kimmel's a great communicator. Uh, His books are excellent. The various things. We're privileged to have him here, and uh, we would love to have you be a part of it. If you are, like I am, an empty nester, what a great gift to give your kids to give your kids the opportunity to come and be part of this. Uh, you might want to keep their kids uh, and let them come, but what a great opportunity so they will parent our grandkids well so we don't kill them, right? <laughs> Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 17, we are doing a series called Prophets and Kings. We're specifically looking at various kings in the nation of Israel and the prophets that interface with them. Uh, this morning we'll look at a message I call Compromise, and we're going to be looking at a guy named Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat has a first name. What's his first name? Jumping. Jumping Jehoshaphat. How many of you have never heard that term before? If you're under 60, you've probably never heard that term before. It's not actually a biblical term. I did a little research, and uh, we're not really sure of the origin of that. seems to be in the early 1800s in America, there was some uh, some some preacher who had a donkey, and the donkey jumped some instead of ran. And so he would always say, jumping Jehoshaphat, it caught on, became an American folklore and tradition. But uh, anyway, you can Google it up. There are several different things there. We're not going to talk about that at all today, though so it doesn't matter 2nd Chronicles chapter 17 talking about Jehoshaphat verse 3 open your Bibles, your apps and we'll look at the word together and the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father David's earlier days and Jehoshaphat did not seek the Baals but he sought the God of his father and followed his commandments and did not act as Israel did after the death of Solomon the nation of Israel was divided If you remember that story, we talked about how basically we had Saul, then David, then Solomon, because of Solomon's sin, prophet came into Solomon's life, Isaiah, and he said, Solomon, after you die, the nation's gonna be split. The nation was split in two. It was called the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom was called Israel. It adopted and took the name of Israel. The Southern Kingdom was called Judah. Israel had ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. Judah to the south had two of the tribes, the tribe of Judah, which makes sense, and the tribe of Benjamin. So the Northern tribe, that is the tribe, or the Northern Kingdom, that is the Kingdom of Israel, was more populated, had more people, and was more powerful as a result of that the southern kingdom only had two tribes and so it was less least had less people was not as populated and not as powerful last week we saw that the seventh king of the northern empire was a really wicked king his name was ahab Remember, if you were with us last week, Ahab was a guy who was known for his wickedness. In fact, he was infamous for two things. One was that he was the most wicked king up until that time in Israel's history. In 1 Kings 16.30, we read this verse, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So he was infamous for two things. Number one, he was wicked. He became the personification of evil and a poor ruler in the nation of Israel, that is, the northern kingdom. Secondly, he was infamous for the woman he married. Her name was whom? Jezebel. He married Jezebel. She was an equally wicked woman. If you were with us last week, I said most men marry up, but he married down. She was terrible. In fact, she is known for killing the prophets of God. She was known for killing Elijah, and she was known for killing a man named Naboth because Naboth had a vineyard next to the palace. He wouldn't sell it, so she had him murdered so she could give it as a gift to her husband. So she was one wicked woman. So what you have in the northern kingdom is you have uh, Jezebel and Ahab really joint ruling, and they were leading the nation into very dark places. At that same time, in the southern kingdom of Judah, we have Jehoshaphat as the king. Jehoshaphat was a righteous ruler. He was a good ruler. He was a man who followed after God. The contrast could not be more stark. One set of rulers were godly. Jehoshaphat was godly. The rulers to the north, Ahab and Jezebel, were ungodly. He was righteous. They were unrighteous. He pursued the glory of God. They pursued personal glory as rulers. But as so often it happens, happened to Jehoshaphat. Eventually he compromised. Eventually he compromised. And if you are one who wonders if God is a God of second chances, you can identify with Jehoshaphat. If you've ever wondered if you've fallen away, can you be restored? You can identify with Jehoshaphat. And if you've ever wondered when all hope is gone, if it can ever be returned, you can identify with Jehoshaphat. Because even though he compromised, we're going to see that God speaks very highly of him as one of his kings. Well, the first thing we know about Jehoshaphat is he followed God. We just read those two verses, verses 3 and 4. He followed the example of his father David. He didn't worship the Baals. He sought the God of his fathers. What does it mean to seek after God? I mean, we all want to be God-seekers. We all want to seek after God. But what does that mean? Sometimes I we'll say, that's a man who seeks after God. That's a woman who seeks after God. What does that mean? Well, specifically the scriptures show us in his, in his case. Specifically show show us that he valued the word of God and he valued prayer. He was a man who valued the word of God. If you drop down to verse 7, it says, In the third year of Jehoshaphat's reign, he sent his officials, Ben-Hel, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nathaniel, and Micaiah, to teach in the cities of Judah. What did they teach? Look at verse 9. They taught in Judah the book of the law of the Lord. They took it with them and they taught it through all the cities of Judah and among all the peoples. You see, he was a righteous ruler, and one of the ways we know he was a righteous ruler, he sought God, and seeking God meant that he had a value for the word of God. He highly exalted the God of the word and the word of God. He made sure the law was taught to his people. He valued the word of God. If you are a Christ seeker or a God follower, you will value the word of God, it will be part of your life. The Psalm says this this is the gatekeeper of the Psalms, Psalm one, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in what? The love of the Lord. In this law he meditates day and night and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does he prospers. When you desire the word of God, when you become a man or woman of the word of God, it doesn't matter if drought comes, it doesn't matter if disaster comes, you will be one who prospers before God. If you seek after God, you'll be a man or woman of the word of God. In 2 Timothy 3, it says all Scripture is inspired. Literally, it says all Scripture is God-breathed, theos, pneumatos. Theos, God, pneumatos, air, breath. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped, adequately equipped for every good work. If you're going to seek after God, you're going to be a woman of God, and you're going to be a man of God who pursues God through the Word of God. It doesn't happen apart from that. He was also a man of prayer. He followed God. We see that because of his high value of the word of God. Secondly, he was a man who prayed. He was a guy that you would want in your state house or in the White House. He was a righteous ruler who followed after God. He prayed. If you jump ahead to chapter 20, it's quite interesting to see what happened. Judah is getting ready to go into battle. Jehoshaphat is fearful and so in chapter 20 verse 3 it says Jehoshaphat was afraid he turned his attention to seek the Lord he proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah he gathered together to seek help from the Lord they even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the court and he called the priest and said pray is that what it says? he called the wise men and he said pray He called the godly people and he said pray. That's not what happened. He called the people together and you know what he did? He prayed. He didn't just call his nation to prayer, he led his nation in prayer. He just didn't say it's time to pray, he said we're going to pray and he gathered up all the people and he led them in prayer. And what you find here is a righteous ruler. Men, let me talk to you for one second. If we are going to be men who lead our families well, we're going to be those who not only call them to pray, we're going to lead them in prayer. For some of you, that's a scary thing. You've never prayed with your family in your whole life. You've never said grace and giving gratitude to God even over a meal. But the reality of it is if we're going to lead our families and lead them well, we're going to follow the example of Jehoshaphat who did not just call his people to prayer, he led them in prayer. About four weeks ago, I talked about the impact of a godly dad, the opportunity you have to pray over your kids, opportunity to pray over grandkids. What an example that is! Just to pray blessing into their lives. When you talk them in at night, I mean, Lord, thank you for Sarah and Daniel. Those are my kids' names. Thank you for Sarah and Daniel. We thank you for the day we had. And God, I pray that they will grow up to love you and honor you and bless you. And I commit to them, commit them to you this evening and tomorrow. Prayers a blessing over your kids. It's simple, dads. What a privilege you have. Granddads, what a privilege you have. We kept grandkids from Sunday afternoon. We went to college station after church last Sunday through Wednesday evening. Uh, we came back and died, actually. Four kids, the oldest five, five, five-year-old twins, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. It's like being inside a pinball game the whole time you're there. I mean, it's like, oh, my gosh, just stop for a minute. But one of the great privileges was every night tucking them in. God, I thank you for Jackson and Hudson and Emerson and Grayson. Father, I thank you one day they're going to know you. One day they're going to grow up to be you. Father, I thank you that they are kids who who love their mom, love their dad. God, I, I pray blessing over their lives. As I shared this about five weeks ago, one of our men came up to me at family night this week. He said, Gary, I want you to know I started doing that with my daughter. She can't get enough of it. She can't get enough of it. More daddy, more. More daddy. What a high privilege. He just didn't call his people to prayer. He led them in prayer. That's the guy you want in the state house. That's the guy you want in the white house. That's the guy you want leading the charge as your godly king. He was a righteous ruler. He not only followed God, he corrected injustice. He corrected injustice. I mean, this was a guy who looked at looked in and he said, the nation has drifted far from God. We need to call the nation back, especially the leaders of the nation, and we need to make sure justice is served within the nation because there are people being treated poorly. We've drifted so far away from God, we have to get back to fearing God and following God. Sound familiar? <laughs> I mean, that, that could be the script of our nation today. And so in chapter 19, Jehoshaphat brought reform. And he brought reform to the legal system. And he said in verse 4, he lived in Jerusalem. He went out among the people. He brought them back to the Lord their God. He appointed judges in the land of all the fortified cities. And he said to the judges, consider what you're doing, for you do not judge for man, but you judge for the Lord. He says, your responsibility is to honor God in the position you've been placed in. That's your responsibility. That's your privilege. And then he goes on and he says in verse 7, Nail then let the fear of the Lord be upon you. If you're going to reign, if you're going to judge, if you're going to be in this position of leadership, do it by fearing God. Be very careful what you do. The Lord your God will have no part in unrighteousness, partiality, or the taking of a bribe. He says justice needs to be executed. It needs to be executed well, and it needs to take place when we honor God in the legal system. When we make sure everybody is treated fairly and everybody is treat, treated equally. And we say, May his tribe in the nation had drifted far from God and he's calling them back if you look at the end of verse 4 he was bringing them back to the God of their fathers I think there's an easy application here and there we are a nation who has drifted from the roots from its roots and from God he's become an afterthought especially in the realms we're looking at here rather than the first thought and we need to get back to make sure that God is honored Every place we go. There's a guy named Joe Wright, and he was invited to be chaplain for the day in the Kansas legislature in 1996. And part of what happens when you're chaplain for the day, you get to pray over the legislature. I had the privilege to do that in Austin uh, several years ago. And you go and spend the day with uh, with the House and the Senate, and and you get to open the house, is what I did, in prayer. And uh, I didn't pray the way this guy did. He prayed with boldness. I didn't. This is how he prayed. He looked at the House of Representatives in Kansas as January 23, 1996. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and seek your direction. Lord, we know your words say, woe to those who call evil good, but that's what we've done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and call it pluralism. We've worshipped other gods and call it multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and call it an alternate lifestyle. We exploit the poor and call it a lottery. We've neglected the needy and call it self-preservation. We've killed the unborn and call it a choice. We've shot abortionists and call it justifiable. We've neglected to discipline our kids and call it building self-esteem. We've abused power and call it political savvy. We covet our neighbor's possessions and call it ambition. We pollute the air with profanity and pornography and call it freedom of expression. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and see if there be a wicked way found in us and guide these dear men and women as they govern the great state of Kansas. Those politicians didn't know whether to spit or wind their watches when this guy was dying. But he's right. He's right. He was calling them and he's calling us. The same way Jehoshaphat was calling us people back to God, that's what he was doing. And by the way, it's easy to pick up stones and throw at those who are in political office and say, You should be doing that. But here's the question I have for us Do we covet our neighbor's possessions and call it ambition? Do we look at abortion in our nation and do anything about it? Do we get involved in pornography and profanity and call it freedom of expression? How do you apply this in your life? Well, what we see is Jehoshaphat corrected injustice, Jehoshaphat followed God. And he taught and modeled dependency upon God. When he called his people to prayer in Second Chronicles chapter 20, he was modeling for them dependency upon God. They're getting ready to go into battle, and his first step was to call upon God. It's exactly what the psalmist was talking about in Psalm 20, verse 7, when he said this, Some boast in chariots, some boast in horses, What we boast in the name of the Lord our God. Jehoshaphat getting ready to go into battle was fearful and the first thing he did is said men we got to pray we have to seek God we have to turn to God we have to ask God to bless this and so the first thing he did was turn to God his trust was not in his weapons his trust was not in their might his trust was in the living God the result of a man who is a righteous ruler he was blessed by God. He was blessed with peace. His nation was blessed with peace. If you look at chapter 17, verse 10, it says, Now the dread of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. And then a little later in chapter 20, verse 30, it says this, it's in front of you. So the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace for God gave him rest on all sides. Jehoshaphat was a righteous ruler who followed God, who did away with injustice or sought to do away with injustice, who modeled dependency upon God, and God blessed his land with peace. Secondly, he blessed him with prosperity. If you look at verse 11 of chapter 17, it begins to talk about what the other nations did. It said the Arabians brought him 7,700 sheep and 7,700 rams and 7,700 male goats and he grew greater and he built fortresses and he had to build cities to store stuff and his supplies and the cities were great and warriors and valiant men were throughout Jerusalem. He was blessed in every way that you can ever begin to imagine. He's blessed with peace and he's blessed with prosperity. End of story. Not quite. Big great ending, wouldn't it? Man of God, ruling the nation of God, fearing God, trusting God, seeing peace and prosperity everywhere. You would think, man, if this ended here, he would be our hero. <clears throat> it doesn't stop there. Every week, it seems like I've issued the same warning. We are never more vulnerable than when we are successful. Successful. In fact, say that with me, because I'm gonna, we're going to do it ten more times, probably. Got ten more weeks of prophets and kings. We are never more vulnerable than when we are successful. That's the story of Jehoshaphat. He, he is highly successful. He is favored by God. He has experienced great blessing. Things could not be gone better in his life. I mean, he's hitting 400. He's throwing touchdown passes. You name it, he's doing it. His nation is blessed. He is blessed. He's a righteous ruler. But sometimes godly men and women make foolish decisions. But here's the good news. As long as the grace of God is available, when we compromise and when we fail, that failure doesn't have to be final. Jehoshaphat compromised in three ways. He compromised in a marriage alliance. If you look at verse, verse 1 of chapter 18, it says, Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor. He allied himself by marriage with whom? 18.1. He aligned himself in marriage with Ahab. Ahab, the wicked ruler of the north, and his wicked queen Jezebel, the wicked queen of the north, I mean, what are you thinking, Jehoshaphat? You're blessed by God at every hand. Your nation has favor. Your nation has peace. Your nation has prosperity. Why'd you do it? Well, I think one of two reasons. The scriptures don't tell us specifically, but I think one or two reasons. The reason why he did it. Number one, uh, it was politically strategic. Politically strategic. He gave his son in marriage, or he actually took the the daughter of Ahab and gave that that girl to his son, because in in those days you married the king's sons or daughters so they wouldn't attack their own kids. So his son marries Ahab's daughter. Ahab is the wicked ruler of the north. His daughter comes down to the south, and she marries uh, Jehoshaphat's son, and so he knows the more powerful northern kingdom will not attack his kingdom because his daughter is living there. It was politically savvy. I think he may have done it out of fear. The northern kingdom was stronger. The northern kingdom had more people. The northern kingdom could come and invade. And rather than trusting God for a moment, he began to trust his own devices. And it's a real tragedy. Because you know what happens? This son's name is Jehoram. Jehoram marries Ahab's daughter. Later on it says about Jehoram, this is when he became king after Jehoshaphat's dead, Jehoram walked in the way of the kings of Israel just as the house of Ahab did. For Ahab's daughter was his wife and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Do you understand what's happening here? A father arranges an ungodly marriage for his son for political purposes. A father should be protecting his sons and daughters, not putting them in harm's way. Whenever you compromise, it's costly. The cost here would be having a son who forsook God and followed the ways of Baal. What a tragedy. In over 30 years of ministry, one of the dumbest statements I've had said to me on several occasions been by parents who think they're saying something really bright. When they say, you know, Gary, I don't want to teach my kids what to believe. I want them to grow up and decide on their own. Can I tell you something? I'm not allowed to use the word stupid around my grandkids. That's stupid. You don't want to teach your kids about the Lord Jesus Christ because you want them to grow up and believe whatever they want to believe. You want them to... That's like saying to your five-year-old who's got a stomach ache, here's the medicine cabinet, figure out what works. I mean, it's the same thing. That's just physical. Why would a godly mom and dad not teach their kids about the Savior? Everything in your life should point to the Savior. Everything in your life should, should be praying that they'll know the Savior. We tuck those kids in. We pray, Lord Jesus, I pray that Hudson, Jackson, Grayson, and Emerson come to know you at a young age. We begin to pray that for our kids from the moment we conceived. The moment we found out Bev was pregnant, every night we prayed for two things. We prayed that they would come to know Jesus at a young age and that God would bring a godly mate into their life. Why would you not do that? Why would you not? And here's a dad who didn't protect his son. He said, son, you go marry this woman and you see what happens. Look at that. By the way, next week I'll preach the next section. It gets a whole lot worse. The next section shows a grandmother murdering all her grandkids. And guess who that grandma is? Stay tuned for next week. Come back. Or read the Bible. It's in there. Protect your kids, because the cost of compromise is terrible. Second sinful compromise through military alliance. Chapter, Chapter 18. In verse two, it says some years later, he went down to visit Ahab at Samaria. So Jehoshaphat's the king of the south, Ahab the king of the north. His son is now married to Ahab's daughter, and he goes to visit his father, or you know, his son's father-in-law, and Ahab slaughtered, they had a big feast, all these sheep and stuff, and he turns to him in verse three, and he says, will you go up with me against Ramoth Gilead? Will you go into battle with me? Will you form a military alliance with me and attack the city of Ramoth Gilead? And, and and Jehoshaphat said to him, I am as you are and my people as your people. We will be with you in battle. He says, we'll form a military alliance and do it. But then Jehoshaphat says in verse four, he, he said, please let's inquire for the word of the Lord. He, or first let's inquire the word of God. He says, before we do this, let's stop and pray. Let's stop and pray. Can I let, can I tell you something? There are times when you don't have to stop and pray. This would have been one of them. When an ungodly man says we need to go into an alliance together and form this military alliance and go into battle together, you don't have to stop and pray about that. You showed up at my office tomorrow and said, you know, Gary, uh, things are tough financially. I'm going to go hit a bank. I want you to come with me. I'm not going to pray about that. <laughs> my answer is no. No. Or you come off and say, Gary, you know, the guys are going out after work. We're going to hit a strip club in Colleen, and we thank you to enjoy it. Would you come with us? I'm not going to pray about that. I'm going to look at you and say the answer is no. If you come to me and say, you know, Gary, next Sunday we're going to Papa Do's for lunch. We'd like to take you and Bev. I'm not going to pray about that one either. (laughs) The answer is yes, I can tell you now. We're going to be there. But but here's the, here's the reality. There are times you have to pray. This is, they, he has no reason to enter this alliance. It doesn't need to happen. So he says, let's stop and pray. So, of course, Ahab says, sure, we can do that. So he calls together. Look at what he does in verse 5. The king of Israel, that's Ahab, he assembled uh, prophets, 400 men, and he said to them, shall we go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? Now, I remind you, we met the prophets of uh, Ahab and Jezebel last week. They were prophets of what? Baal. They were prophets of the ashram. They were not godly prophets. And so they, he, comes, he calls us prophets. Now, if you are one of the prophets of Ahab, and Ahab calls you in, you're going to do whatever Ahab asks you to do. And so they say, of course, go up. God has given to the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat, he's got second thoughts. He says, is there not a prophet of the Lord that we may ask of? You see the implication? These are not prophets of the Lord. Isn't there one prophet of God we can ask of? Enter a guy named Micaiah, the king of Israel, Ahab, says in verse 7, there's one man we can inquire of, the Lord. There's only one godly prophet in my nation. In the northern kingdom there's one godly prophet. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good things concerning me. always evil. Whenever I ask this prophet of the Lord something, he always says, no. he can't stand me, I'm not, I don't want to ask him. So, so they call a guy named Micaiah, and we need to name more young men Micaiah. Micaiah in Hebrew means guts. And not literally, but that's what this guy had. He had guts. So he comes in and he prophesies. Verse 16, I saw all of Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. The Lord said, they have no master. Let each one of them return to his house in peace. Basically, he's saying what's going to happen is there's not going to be a leader of the nation. If you go into battle, Ahab, you're going to die. And there are going to be sheep without a shepherd because you're a dead man. And so what does he say? I mean, he looks at him in verse 17. Did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me? <laughs> I told you this guy didn't like me. You go in the battle, you're going to die. So what happened, he comes up with a little plan. Verse 29 of chapter 18, he says, I'll disguise myself, go in the battle, not wearing royal robes. He disguised himself and goes in the battle wearing armor. You see, kings wore their royal robes so they wouldn't get shot. They wouldn't get bows and arrows shot at them and they could survive. And so what does he do? He puts on an armor so he's not detected, so he can be protected, because Micaiah said, you go in the battle, you're going to die. So what happens? The battle is almost over. Verse 33, a certain man drew his bow at random, struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. Can you imagine that? I mean, this arrow goes up, and where does it come down? Right into the side of Ahab through the joint of the armor, and it kills him right there. He's disguised a warrior, not as a king, and he dies on the spot. I wish Micaiah was there who said, I told you so. <laughs> A prophet comes on the scene in verse, nine, uh, verse 2 of chapter 19. Jehu came and looked at Jehoshaphat and said, here's the cost of compromise, Jehoshaphat. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? Jehoshaphat, you've compromised. You've compromised. You've gotten in bed with the wicked. And he is condemned by God. Finally, there's a marketplace compromise. It's an interesting story. It's found at the end of chapter 20. After Ahab dies, a new king comes up named Ahaziah. It says in verse 35, he did a wicked thing with him. He allied with him in a marketplace ministry. They were going to build ships, and they were going to send the ships for commerce to Tarshish. But all the ships, it's an ungodly thing. It says in the scriptures, all the ships go away. They're lost, literally shipwrecked. Compromising with sin is not worth the cost. Not worth the cost. His son worships the Baals. The marriage compromise. In the military compromise. God looks at him and says, you've got in bed with the wicked. Wrath is coming. And there's a marketplace compromise. He joins in a business venture with a guy. He shouldn't join a business venture win because but when you join in business ventures or any ventures with the ungodly, you've got different principles, different practices, different purposes. And he says the result of that is you lose everything you've got. That's what happened there. The cost... Of compromising is high. I need to quit, but I'm gonna give you three three areas I see compromise in right now. This in your notes is not on the screen. Number one, the secular sacred divide. The sacred secular divide. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In the nineteen fifties and sixties, liberal theology took over mainline churches. Mainline churches began to receive culture. And so the church looked just like the culture. You went to church, nobody opened the Bible, nobody had a Bible, the gospel was not preached, and, and good works became the norm. It became a bunch of do-gooders, basically. Mainline denominations began to die, fundamental churches reacted, as they often do, but to the extreme. And so what we said is, we're not going re- to receive culture like you have and look like the culture, we're going to reject culture. And so what happened is we discouraged our kids in the 50s and 60s in evangelical fundamentalist churches, and we said, you don't need to go in the science, you don't need to go in the arts, you don't need to go into politics, you don't need to go into economics, you don't need to do all the things, you need to go in the ministry. Nothing could have been more wrong than that. We don't need to reject the culture, and we don't need to receive the culture, we need to redeem the culture, we need to buy the culture back. Let me tell you what I mean by that. What I mean by that, and I'll read it right out of my notes that I did this week, We need to have godly nurses, godly physicians, godly dentists, godly therapists redeeming medicine to the glory of God. And we need to have godly coaches and teachers and professors and counselors redeeming education to the glory of God. And we need to have godly business owners, entrepreneurs, executives, salespeople, white and blue-collar workers redeeming the workplace for the glory of God. And we need to have godly city councilmen, school board members, representatives, judges, governors, and presidents who redeem the political arena to the glory of God. And we need to have godly attorneys, pushing it some, I know, but we got them here, redeeming the legal realm as Jehoshaphat did to the glory of God. And we need godly moms and dads redeeming the home to the glory of God because every job is sacred. Because you are subject of a kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, not the kingdom of Britain, the kingdom of Spain, the kingdom of America. You are subject of a heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of God, and as his subjects, you represent him in everything you do with the goal of modeling your king to others so they'll want to be part of his kingdom. So when you strap it up and go in the workplace tomorrow or parent those kids tomorrow, whatever you do tomorrow, you do it to the glory of God so others will see you represent a king in his kingdom and they'll want to be part of that kingdom and worship that king. When we divide the secular and sacred, we compromise and we say things like this. Well, that's just business. No, it's not. Because you represent the king of kings to the glory of God. And I hear people say, well, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, or you substitute whatever it is for what happens at the conference stays at the conference. No, you don't, because you represent the king of kings to the glory of God. And we say things like, I only do it on Saturday nights. No, you shouldn't, because whatever you do on Saturday nights, you do representing the king of kings to the glory of God. There is no secular-sacred divide. I get my paycheck at TBC, you get yours somewhere else. We all represent the same king in his kingdom. Wherever we are and whatever we do, there is no difference. But I see compromise compromise in that area. Second area, I see compromise as morality. I'm not even going to talk about that. And by the way, most of us pick up bricks and throw at homosexuality and alternate lifestyle. It's just as wrong to be involved in heterosexual sinful choices. The third area I see compromise in is the area of the church. Churches are guilty. The 21st century is the compromising church. Uh, the Bible is not taught. The Bible is not used. You can go to most churches in Temple, Texas. We are the buckle of the Bible belt. Without a Bible today, without an app, preacher is not going to say, open your Bible and turn to, because it's become that which is just something other people do. Churches have become attractional. We want to do things so lost people will feel comfortable. The gospel is a stumbling block can't get past it. So you say, Gary, where's the hope? I mean, you start this by saying, man, if you were like Jehoshaphat and you wonder if there's a second chance, you wonder if anything good can come out of it, look at how Jehoshaphat's remembered. Here's Here's the ending of his life. There's great hope. Verse 32. And he walked, this is at the end of his life, God says this in his word, he walked in the way of his father Asa and did not depart from it, doing right in the sight of God. What about all those compromises? God's grace waxes over all of that when we allow him. So there's great hope. If you have fallen far away, you can be restored. If you've lost hope, there is hope. Failure never has to be final when there's God's grace. There are people outside the doors, and the parking lot is full. They've been waving at me for five minutes. I really don't care. (laughs) You had to wait, they can wait, right? You know, somebody asked me, Gary, why are you so passionate about this today? Because I see the abuses. I see the compromise. I see it in my own life, first of all. When they're one finger pointing at you, there are three coming back at me. And it breaks my heart, but it makes me joyful because God doesn't give up on us. Amen? Okay, we do have to go. Thank you, Father, for these dear people. Raise up a generation of righteous believers and kids and grandkids. Help us to be a nation who turns to you, not away from you. We go in Jesus' name, amen.